Good morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 8. So if you can turn there, Gospel according to Matthew. If you're uh, visiting with us and you're not used to handling a Bible, that's okay. That's great. We all have to learn uh, how to do new things. So Matthew is about four-fifths of the way through, but it's the first book of the New Testament. We're in chapter 8, so as you're looking at this, the big numbers, that's the chapter number. And then we're going to start reading in verse 28. So the verse numbers are the little numbers in there. And we're actually going to be reading through chapter 9, verse 8. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Everybody got a Bible? Everybody there? Okay, if you don't, we're going to have the words up on the screen behind me. Let me read these verses for us this morning. This is Matthew 8, 28. When Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man's blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that... The words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, earlier this morning we sang, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. That word is Jesus himself. The word made flesh, and that word is the word of command that he speaks because Jesus has authority. And it's his authority that we will see on display this morning. Right in the middle of this section here in the gospel according to Matthew, as we have talked about, that is all about Jesus' authority. It goes all the way back to chapter 5 where he starts the Sermon on the Mount and it runs all the way through chapter 9. You could even say it runs into the beginning of chapter 10, depending on where you want to draw the lines. But this whole section that we have been in is all about Christ's authority. And a note on the structure of chapters 8 and 9 where we've been recently, we looked at this last week, that chapters 8 and 9 are actually three accounts of three groups of miracles. So there's nine miracles all together in chapters 8 and 9, and they're grouped together in groups of three divided by stories about discipleship. So the first three that we looked at were the three healing stories. Now we are right in the middle of this section, so the second group of three. So last week we saw Jesus calming the storm as his disciples are going across the Sea of Galilee on a boat. And so we saw in that miracle, Jesus demonstrating his authority over nature, his authority over even disasters. 
Well, this week we're going to look at the second and the third miracles in this group, and we're going to see here that Jesus has authority over demons, the power of evil, the spiritual forces in the unseen realm, and then he's going to have power over uh, paralysis, authority over what looks like uh, just another physical healing, but then we see Jesus himself saying it's actually more than that, that it's showing that Jesus has authority over sin itself. He has the authority to forgive sin. So if you take these three miracles in this section together, what do we see? He has authority over the fallen creation. He has authority over Satan and demons, and he has authority over sin. So the world, the devil, and sin. And then you ask, well, what else is left? Nothing. Jesus has authority over everything that causes pain and suffering and sadness and despair in this life. He has authority over it all. So we don't have to be afraid. Jesus is our good Savior who redeems the world from these things. And so that's the big idea of this section, that Christ has this authority And we see it in these two stories, this first of Jesus casting out demons. So this is our first point. We'll just look at these two stories in turn, Jesus casting out demons. So let's be real. This story makes us ask a lot of questions, doesn't it? There's a lot here when we read a story like this and you say, well, wait, what about this? What about the pigs? And what about that? Was Jesus being unfair to those people? And why did Jesus listen to the demons in the first place? And what are demons exactly? And do they still possess people today? What about Christians? We have so many questions. And we can't answer them all this morning. Lord willing, Pastor Drew and I are going to put together a podcast that is, if nothing else gets flooded in our building, and we're going to do a podcast this week about demons and spiritual warfare. There's lots of questions that we can't answer this morning, but I think actually when we look at the text in Matthew, we should really kind of notice that Matthew doesn't seem concerned with answering those questions. I mean, Matthew gets that this is a weird story too, right? This is unusual, This is remarkable what's happening here. And Matthew kind of just puts it out there and and he's not trying to give us all the answers because Matthew has one point that he's trying to make. It's actually really interesting. If you compare Matthew to the other uh, gospel writers, Mark and Luke, who also share the same story, Mark and Luke include a lot more details about this story. Matthew is very, very brief in the description that he's giving of what happens here because all Matthew wants you to see is that demons are real and they're terrifying And they can wreak unspeakable havoc on God's creatures. But Jesus has authority over demons. That's what Matthew wants you to know. It just fits in this bigger section right there. That's it. So look at verse 28. It says, When Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, verse 28, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, if you've read Mark or Luke recently, you know in their account, they say there is only one demon-possessed man that comes up to Jesus. And so this has led many to wonder, why does Matthew include two? And some would even cite this as a discrepancy in the Bible, that they would say that the Bible's full of contradictions. And here's one example. Matthew says there's two. Mark and Luke says there's one. So what's, what's going on here? Well, Mark and Luke don't say that it was only one man that came up to Jesus. Any more than I could say there is only one guitar on the stage. But I could say there is a guitar on the stage, and that would not be inaccurate. And that's what Matthew or that's what Mark and Luke are doing. They're saying a man, and in particular what it seems like Mark and Luke are doing is they zero in on this one man because he, after Jesus heals them, wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus has a follow-up conversation with him. So they decide to just tell the story through the, the lens of this one man. But again, Matthew's not including any of those details. Matthew is actually just going to tell the story and, and tells us this added detail that there were, in fact, two men that are demon-possessed that Jesus heals here. So it's not a problem. It's just a difference in wording. But Matthew leaves all of those details out because he wants us to just see two men, two demon-possessed men, come up to Jesus. And it says demon-possessed in your translation. The word in the Greek is actually um, more like demonized. Sometimes it will be translated, they have a demon. Someone has a demon. And again, this is these places where we have lots of questions and and we can't go farther than what the Bible actually tells us. The Bible never explains the mechanics of this, of how someone is demonized or demon-possessed. Jesus does talk about demons taking up residence in a person and that when they are cast out, which means to be sent out, that Jesus says, then the demon wanders around and waste places until it finds somewhere to possess again. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, the desert 
or barren wilderness is usually described as a place that's being in the domain of demons. But um, the influence of an unclean spirit on someone, when someone is demonized, it, it takes lots of different forms in the New Testament. So um, it could just be that the, the New Testament describes someone having a demon as becoming very ill, having some kind of sickness, and that that's the result of demons in their life. Or sometimes it's more like a physical impairment, such as blindness. Sometimes uh, it, it implies some sort of temptation or deceiving activity, that there's a lying spirit that comes on. Judas Iscariot is described as having Satan enter into him, but it doesn't seem like Judas loses control of himself. It just seems like Satan is exerting a, a huge amount of influence on Judas as he betrays Jesus. So there's those, the spectrum of activity that demons can have in people's lives in the New Testament, but here with these two men, it seems like these demons have just absolutely taken these men over. That they have completely lost control of themselves. They've lost their identity to these demons. And it's not just one demon per person. It's uh, in the other accounts described as, as possibly thousands of demons that have taken up possession and, and, and are um, ruling over these men. And it's just absolutely tragic what is happening to these men. And we have to remember, like I said, that this is true. This is real. The Bible is very clear. Satan and demons are real. There is this whole realm of unseen creatures that interact with God's creation here as material, physical reality, both good spirits and angels and then these demons. And this is hard for us in the West. This is hard for us in modern America because we have such a materialistic, such an anti-supernatural worldview that we just don't even think this way. But many people in the world still understand this. And if you're sitting here thinking, like, yeah, well, they're all backwards, then that probably speaks more to your arrogance. Because this is the way that the Bible portrays the world. That there is a whole realm of things that we don't see, and yet it's very, very real. And so when we come to a story like this, we shouldn't just exist, or dismiss the existence of demons, we have to recognize that this is true and this is real. But what we also shouldn't do is go too far into that, to get too interested in that and to try and go, as I said, beyond what the Bible actually tells us about this. It's very surprising how little details there are in the Bible. For something that is such a big deal, that there's this whole parallel reality to our existence of unseen forces that are even interacting with each other and that, that has something to do with us. As much as that is true, the Bible tells us very little about what's actually happening there. And I think people go way too far in trying to prescribe or describe what is actually happening. I think really what God just wants us to know is that this is real, it really matters, but there's actually not much that we humans can do about it except to trust and obey God. That is how this unseen, long spiritual war plays out. It's how it plays out for us is that we trust and obey God in the face of those forces. And when we fail to trust and obey God, then we are actually siding with the other team in that unseen battle. That's what we do know about Satan and demons, that they were, at one point, uh, angelic beings, good spiritual beings, and they chose at some point to rebel against God and against God's authority, and because of that, they were cast out of heaven. And the scriptures say that now they are constrained here on earth, awaiting judgment as they operate in this world. So they are under judgment even now, and yet they are operating in this world. And so they go around in this world. It says, the Bible says that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking, to someone, seeking someone to devour. But as John Calvin said, as these demons go around in the world, everywhere they go, they drag their chains with them. They are already under judgment. And in fact, Revelation chapter 12 says, because they're under judgment, we should watch out because they're angry. They're angry because they know that their time is short. And what are they trying to do while they are constrained to judgment operating on us in this world? They are trying to torment and accuse and deceive and mislead God's creatures so that they can at every point thwart God's purposes in the world. That is how they act in this spiritual war that is happening that we can't see and yet we experience all the time that they are trying to get people off of the path that leads to life 
and onto the path that leads to destruction. This is what Satan was doing at the very beginning when he deceived Eve into rebelling, joining him in his rebellion against God. This is what they still try to do now. And these two men in the gospel according to Matthew are completely under the influence of these satanic demonic forces. And we don't know their story. We don't know how these men got here. We don't know if they were just walking along one day and all of these demons jumped them or if these men did something to invite this activity into their lives. The book of James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a good promise. But we have to assume that the inverse is also true. If you don't submit yourself to God, If you don't resist the devil, then he will flee to you. He will run to you. And so I think that if you don't submit yourself to God and his word, and if you rather entertain unrepentant sin and wickedness and unrighteousness, even false worship, worshiping idols, which the Apostle Paul says is actually to fellowship with demons, if you do the exact opposite of what God has told you to do in his word, then you are inviting demonic activity into your life. And one way or another, that is the point that these men are brought to, that they are completely under the control of demons. The text says that they are so fierce that no one could pass that way. No one could get even close to the tombs where these men have taken up residence because they're so violent and aggressive and and sociopathic. They're terrifying to those people around them. And again, you stop and think about how sad it is for these men and their existence to be so tormented, so imprisoned, and hurt, and alone. And then here comes Jesus to their side of the lake. And he gets out of his boat, and they come out to meet him. Verse 29, behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This whole thing is fascinating. It's always interesting when you, when you have these glimpses in the Bible of, of, of demons or of angels because it just lets you into this whole other perspective about what is going on. And these words here, last week Alex talked about how Jesus would often refer to himself as what? The son of man. And we saw how that's really a messianic title. It goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to see Jesus call himself the Son of Man again in the very next story that we look at this morning. But, but here the demons call Jesus what? The Son of God. And that's what Satan kept on calling Jesus when he was being tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. He says, if you're really the Son of God. Now Son of God's also a messianic title. In the Old Testament, you could look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, the covenant with David, or you could look at Psalm 2. The Son of God is an idea that the Messiah will be like a son to God with his father. But but I think this is getting at more than just another messianic title. This is really speaking to Jesus' divinity, that he is the only begotten Son of God. God the Son in the flesh, and the demons know it. They walk right up to Jesus and they know exactly who he is because they belong to this unseen spiritual realm. They can see things that are invisible to us. So they see Jesus and they recognize him from when he threw, out, threw them out of heaven in the first place. What are you doing here, son of God? Even if he's veiled in human flesh, they know exactly who Jesus is and they know what he's here for. To torment them. To judge them for their rebellion. And they're confused. Jesus, what are you doing here? Jesus, you're early. That's what they're saying. You're going to torment us before the time? So they know that they are condemned to judgment, but they know that that judgment comes at the end of time. When the Bible says that God is going to put Satan and all of his demons away, throw them into the lake of fire forever and ever where they can no longer exert any influence or do any harm to God's people ever. And that's really good news, amen? But that's what's coming at the end. And yet Jesus is standing there right in front of them and they're saying, wait a minute. This is not supposed to happen yet. The demons don't understand inaugurated eschatology. They don't know about the already and not yet arrival of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus Christ. 
But remember, this is a theme that Matthew is just bringing out in every single story we look at, that everywhere Jesus goes, heaven stuff happens. And so Jesus is bringing that end times reality of the complete destruction, the complete removal, the complete judgment of Satan and his forces. He's bringing that end time destruction back with him into the present where he is now so that when he stands in front of these demons, they recognize that that end times judgment has come in part in him and they tremble. They're terrified. They know exactly who Jesus is. They know what he came for and they are terrified. Look at verse 30. It says, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. So again, Matthew doesn't tell us why they want to go into the pigs or how any of this works. It's interesting. Luke Luke adds that the demons begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. In uh, Revelation, the abyss refers to the bottomless pit from which demons seem to be contained but then can also be released out of. So we don't know. They don't want to go there. It sounds awful. So they just beg Jesus to go into some pigs that are nearby. Now this region, uh, Gadara or uh, Gesara is how Mark and Luke talk about it. This is a mostly Gentile region. And so these people that are here, they're, they're probably not Jewish, which is why they have big herds of pigs. Either they're not Jewish or they're really bad Jews that they have this big herd of pigs. But there's this big uh, herd of pigs around. The Mark's account says that there's probably 2,000 of them. And they say, Jesus, send us into the pigs. Don't send us into the abyss. And then look at verse 32. What does Jesus say to them? Go. And that's it. This is the only word that Jesus speaks in this whole story. One word, one little word, shall fell them. Go, depart, be gone. It's the exact same thing that he says to Satan in chapter four. And Satan listened to him then, and what do these demons do? They listen. The text says, they came out with a word, just, just like that. Just like when Jesus spoke to the diseases. He says, be healed, be cleaned, it's done. We spoke to the storm, cut it out, and it stops. He speaks to the demons, go, and they go. There's no fight, there's no magic formula. Jesus doesn't have to say anything more than go, and they go. And here's what this means. That no one is too far in the grip of any force in this world. Whether that's demons, or alcoholism, or other addictions, whether you think that you have ruined your life and your consequences are too grave and you've sinned too much and you've gone too far away, nobody is too far for Jesus to, live, to, de- for Jesus to deliver you with a word. And he will. One little word can help you. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and ask him for deliverance and he will save you. He can save you. He has the authority. He has the power. There is no one else in heaven or on earth by which you can be saved except for Jesus. So if that's you, and you feel you're imprisoned by something, by whatever it is, even if it's demons, Jesus can save you. And if you don't know how to get that help, that's what we're here for. That's what the church is here for, is to help you to speak this truth of Jesus' deliverance and to speak the truth of God's word into the lies that you might be believing. And you can be saved. You can be delivered. So come, if if this is you, the very first step is for you to just confess that you need help. Come talk to a pastor, come talk to somebody here, and we will tell you about how Jesus can deliver you because he did here. We've seen it, and we've seen it over and over again. As Jesus says in John chapter 8, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. You can be freed. So verse 32, the demons come out, and they go into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the waters. Now, as I was studying this, one of my big questions is, so where'd they go after that? I don't know. Did they go haunt the the villagers? That's a terrifying thought. Did they go into the abyss? Did they go wander around in waste places? We We don't know. Another really important question to ask is, why did Jesus listen to these demons in the first place? 
Because he didn't have to, right? They begged him, but he didn't have to be gracious and merciful to them and answer uh, their requests, but he did. But I don't think that was because he was being nice to them. I think this was just to demonstrate visibly and dramatically the reality of what was actually happening here. Okay, think about this. If there's two men here and they're, they're uh, needing to be healed from these unclean spirits and Jesus says, depart into the abyss. Depart into the waste places. Just get out of these guys, leave them alone. But they didn't go into something else or something visible. Then would we have really known that he cast those demons out? I mean, maybe these guys just had a mental illness. Maybe this was kind of like a psychosomatic thing and they just needed one really good religious experience and that kind of straightened them out. But the fact that he said, no, go into these pigs, that actually made it visible, that made it a proof that these were really demons. Because what do demons do? They love uncleanness, and pigs are unclean. That's why they were hanging out in the tombs when they're in these men, and then they're going to go into this unclean animal, into these pigs, and they only come to steal and kill and destroy. And that's what they do to these pigs. So he said, yeah, those really were demons, because look at what happened. And it was a bunch of demons, because there's like 2,000 pigs here. And it also shows that, yes, Jesus does have authority to cast out demons. He does have authority over these unclean spirits. And you can see it. There's a proof that this happens. And look at verse 33. After this happened, the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they fell down and worshipped him. No. They asked him to leave. They begged him to leave their region, just like the demons were begging. Now these people are saying, Jesus, leave. Yeah, we don't know why. They might have just been afraid of Jesus. They might have realized, man, this guy has got some crazy power that we would rather just not mess with. Okay, if he did that to all of these pigs, what's he going to do to us? Okay, please leave. We're not safe here. But it might have very well been motivated by economic concerns. All of these pigs, 2,000 pigs, this was probably a collective herd of the whole village that they all worked together to, to raise these pigs. And I did some Google math. This many pigs could be worth anywhere from hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars of livestock that they lost. So they might be coming out and just saying, Jesus, you've ruined us. You have absolutely ruined us. So please leave before you destroy any more of our property. We would rather have our stuff and you be gone. Never mind that these two formerly demon-possessed men who are much more valuable than pigs have been healed. They don't care about that. They just care about the pigs that they lost. And never mind that it was the very Son of God visiting them. He came all the way across the lake to be with them. And they want him to leave. They reject him. It was D.A. Carson who said that these villagers loved pigs more than people and swine more than the Savior. And I wonder if there's anybody in here who's convicted by this, that when it really came down to it, you'd rather keep your metaphorical pigs than sacrifice what you have to see someone else saved or to lose what you have but to gain the Savior himself. These men don't want to do that. They miss out. They beg Jesus to leave. And again, weirdly, Jesus grants their request. Because he doesn't have to. But he does. And we ask, why? Why does Jesus listen and get back in the boat and go back to the other side? Well, perhaps this is just Jesus demonstrating, acting out his own teaching to the disciples. Do you remember the last time the word pig was used in the book of Matthew? You remember? Chapter 7, verse 6. Don't cast your pearls to pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's actually the only other time the word pig is used in the gospel according to Matthew. Don't continue to throw precious gifts of the kingdom to people that don't appreciate it and don't want it. Jesus is acting this out for the disciples. So he could, and it's so sad, he could be blessing these villagers. He could be healing so many more of them and announcing to them the good news of the kingdom, but they just want him to leave and Jesus isn't going to use his authority to force them into the kingdom. So he and his disciples get back in the boat, and they go back across the sea. And just think about the timeline again, okay? Just a day before, 
Jesus is with the disciples. He says, hey, let's get in the boat. Let's go across. Wow, crazy storm. Be still. Going to go over to the other side. Wow, two demons. Casting them out. All right, let's go back. Just going around demonstrating his authority. But they get back in the boat. They go back to the other side. So this brings us to our next story in chapter 9. This is Jesus forgiving sins. So verse, chapter 9, verse 1. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. You would think his own city is Nazareth, but it's actually the city of Capernaum. So what it means is this is the city that he has kind of taken up residence in in his adult life. Many scholars think he's actually um, using Peter's house as the sort of home base for all of the work that he's doing here. So he's in his own city. He's in Capernaum. And then verse 2, behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. This is a very famous story as Mark and Luke tell it. Uh, This is the one where they bring the man to Jesus and they can't get into the house because there's too many people, it's too crowded, and so they go up on the roof and they bust a hole in the roof and they lower this paralyzed man on his bed down in front of Jesus in this room. Poor Peter, right? They ruined his roof. (laughs) It's a really dramatic story, though. It's a wonderful story, these details. You just imagine this man coming down in front of Jesus. Matthew doesn't give us any of those details. That's not the important part to him. What is? Christ's authority. He uses the word authority. So they bring this man to Jesus, hoping that he can be healed. In fact, they've got really good reason to believe that Jesus can heal him. Matthew's already said in chapter 4, verse 24, that as Jesus' fame spread throughout the region, people were bringing him sick people and people possessed by demons, and it specifically says, and paralytics, and Jesus healed them. So Jesus has already in his ministry healed, paralyzed people. And so they've got uh, good reason, like I said, to believe that Jesus can heal this man. And so they bring him, whether it's his friends or his family, they bring him to Jesus. And they're coming to him much like the leper did at the beginning of chapter 8. Or the centurion did, who wasn't even asking for healing for himself. He was asking for healing for his servant. But they come to Jesus in faith that he has the authority, that he has the power to heal. And they come to him in humility Right? They're asking Jesus, if you can, you can heal this man. And so we're supposed to see something of kind of a pattern here. This is very familiar with those first three stories that we saw in this chapter. Bring a sick or injured person to Jesus, humbly ask for him to heal, and Jesus, who has the authority to heal, will heal. And so we expect this, just one more immediate healing that Jesus says, get up and walk. But that's not what we get this time. This story breaks the pattern. It's calling our attention to something very important here. So still in verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart. I got a lot out of this just little phrase as I was studying this. Take heart. It means be of good courage. And that doesn't mean like, hey, suck it up. Act like a man. Toughen up. Be brave. No, it means you don't have to worry. Everything's going to be okay. And I started looking at all the other places where Jesus says this, and he says it a lot. He says this often. He's going to say it uh, later in this chapter to the woman who has the discharge of blood that he heals. He says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. He says this to the disciples when they're afraid, when they see Jesus walking on the water out to them. He says, take heart. It's I. It's actually ego me. I am. Take heart. I am. That's what we saw in Exodus 34. It's also what Jesus says to the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, stands with the Apostle Paul when he's in prison in Jerusalem. And he says, take heart. It's going to be okay. What you've proclaimed here in Jerusalem, you're going to go say to Rome. You're not going to die here. Take heart. Kind of reminds me of what you say to your kids when they've had a bad dream. And they're terrified. They're so, they're so worried, they're so afraid, but you're standing there and you know that, that nothing's going to hurt them. You know how secure they are. And you say, hey, it's okay. It's going to be okay. I'm here. That's what Jesus says to us. And it's very tender. It's very fatherly. In fact, he communicates that with the next, the next phrase. He says, take heart, my son. Take heart, my child. It's going to be okay, just this affection, this care that Jesus has. But then what he says last is the most remarkable thing. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Like I said, this breaks the pattern. 
You'd expect this disabled man to, to just get healing. That's what they came for. They, they wanted healing, and yet Jesus proclaims forgiveness to him. And we wonder why. And why with this man? Why with this paralytic does Jesus decide to address the problem of sin and not his physical injury? Was it because this man, rightly or wrongly, thought that his paralysis was the result of some sin in his life? We'll see that Jesus knows men's thoughts. Maybe he knows this man's thoughts too and and knows that this man is coming to Jesus with a burden of guilt. That for all of his physical injury, it's really his sin that he thinks is the biggest problem. Maybe he's coming in, in, in his heart, he is confessing the weight of sin. Or maybe, maybe this is just the time where Jesus is finally ready to reveal to everybody around the deeper truth that is really not about physical healing or sickness or even demons. This is what Matthew brought out in chapter 8 when he connects all of those healing stories to the cross of Christ. That really all of this stuff that we suffer in this life, it has at its root a much more sinister problem, and that is the problem of sin itself. And so if Jesus just went around healing people physically, well, that would be great. They might feel better for a few years, and then they would die, and they would be no worse than they were before. In fact, they would be in eternal torment. If Jesus just went around and dealt with all of your temporary problems, but he never dealt with your eternal problem, then you're still in huge, huge trouble. And Jesus came to deal with the real problem. Sin is our greatest problem. And it's what leads to all of these other effects. Whether that's your own personal sin and consequences of that or just the fact that we live in a sinful world. Disabilities and sickness and all of this comes from fallenness in the world and Jesus came to address that problem. So he proclaims to this man the good news, my son, your sins are forgiven. And we don't know what his reaction was, but we do know how some others reacted. So look at verse three. It says, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. These scribes would have been um, like religious leaders of the day. They would have known all of the rules about uh, the Old Testament law and and they were there to listen to Jesus' teaching and watch what he does. And when he says that this man's sins are forgiven, they accuse him of great sacrilege. That's blasphemous, what he's saying. Blasphemy is to say something that slanders God or profanes God that is sacrilegious. In this case, they think Jesus is acting sacrilegiously because he's claiming to be able to do something that only God can do. In the gospel according to Mark, Mark makes that explicit. These men, as they're asking, they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? This guy's blaspheming. And before we're too hard on these scribes, if Jesus is only a man, they're absolutely right. If Jesus is just a good teacher, then it would be the height of sacrilege and even lunacy for him to look at somebody else and say, your sins are forgiven. How dare he? In the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, it says, such a man as that ought to be put to death because blasphemy is that serious. Well, that's if Jesus is just a man, but he's not. Look at verse four. It says, but Jesus knowing their thoughts. I mean, just right there. He's God, the omniscient God. He knows what is going on in their minds. It says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? The point here, what Jesus is saying, is to say your sins are forgiven is actually easier because you can't verify that. How would you actually know if somebody's sins were forgiven or not? So maybe they're saying Jesus is just some kind of charlatan, you know, like the the faith healers that you see around today. They never heal anybody with like a super obvious disability, right? They always heal people with cataracts or something, you know, like you can't see anything that is actually going on. And say maybe just Jesus, he's just kind of pronouncing invisible spiritual blessings as a sham on somebody. He doesn't actually have the power to do that. It's kind of the same thing with the demons and the pigs. If Jesus hadn't sent the demons into the pigs, then how would we have really known? Was it really, you know, Jesus is saying, oh yeah? You don't think I have the authority to heal sins or to forgive sins? 
Watch this. Only God can forgive sins. Well, only God can heal a paralytic. Verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And I love how short verse 7 is. And he rose and went home. (laughs) Boom. That's it. Let there be light, and there was light. Get up and go home. He got up and went home. One more time. Immediate, absolute authority. Jesus says it, and it happens. And the implication here is not just that Jesus has authority over paralysis. We've already seen that. What's this claim now? That Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. There's a neat parallel. If you look at these three stories we've looked at together, at the end of every story, there's a response to what Jesus has just done. Jesus calms the storm. The disciples marvel and they say, who is this? Casts out the demons. The whole town comes out. They have this really negative reaction of fear towards Jesus. They say, please leave. And then here... There's fear. But it's not the kind of fear of being afraid in a negative sense, in a bad sense. It's, it's the kind of overwhelming feeling, the trembling that you have when you are in the presence of someone or something so much greater than you are. That if they weren't on your side, you would be undone. But if they are on your side, then this is amazingly good news. And that's what they see here. This is the fear of reverence or awe. And so it leads to the whole crowd glorifying God. But the last phrase here is very interesting. It says, they glorify God who had given such authority to men. And I think what that means is they, don't, they still don't get it. They don't quite get who Jesus is yet. They know that something amazing has happened centered in this person. They know that there is divine activity here, but they still can only conceive of Jesus as a man, which is understandable. I mean, there's only been one time in history that God and man have come together in one person, Jesus Christ. And so it's going to take some time. In fact, it's not going to be until chapter 14 that the closest disciples of Jesus are going to start to get it. They'll actually confess, you're the son of God. The demons get it right away. They see it right away, but it takes some time for the disciples, and Jesus is patient to reveal himself through all of these different miracles and all of these teachings. It's going to take some time, but these crowds, they just don't understand it yet. They know something marvelous has happened. They know that God deserves glory for it because something has happened that only God can do, but they don't understand yet that it is God himself standing right in front of them as Jesus Christ. They don't get it, but we should. We should do know who this man is. We do know Jesus' true identity, that truly this is the Son of God. And not only do we know who Jesus really is, but we know how the rest of the story goes. This is an interesting part in the Gospel according to Matthew because this is the first introduction of real opposition to Jesus. This is going to just keep on building this charge of blasphemy that deserves death. This is going to build and build through the rest of the Gospels until it gets to the point where Jesus is hung on a cross to die for what he is falsely accused of as blasphemy. And yet it's on that cross that we truly see Christ's authority to forgive sins on display. We read Exodus 34 this morning, this statement of God's character attached to his very name. What did we learn about God in Exodus 34? That God is gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love, and forgiving iniquity. He forgives sins. This is in God's very character to be a forgiving, gracious, merciful God. But when we consider that about God, we shouldn't just think that when God says, your sins are forgiven, that they just kind of float away into the ether. That's not how it works. The wages of sin still have to be paid. As the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood... There is no remission of sin. So God can't just say, your sins are forgiven. God has to do something about it. 
God has to do something about your sin for your sins to be forgiven. And he has in Jesus Christ. As we read on in the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 28, verse 28, this really important part of the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus is going to tell his disciples why he came down from heaven. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is how your sins are forgiven. Jesus paid a ransom price for you. He paid your debt of sin. That's what forgiveness means. Imagine that you have an incredible debt of money that you owe to somebody else. And every day you wake up and you feel the weight of that debt that you owe to that person. You feel your whole life is dominated by the debt that you owe to this person. And that person comes to you and they could exact that payment from you. They could punish you for your failure to pay and instead they say, you're forgiven. Don't worry about it. It's covered. You don't have to pay it anymore. You go away, your debt is forgiven. Well, that doesn't mean that they magically got their money back. That means that they will suffer the loss for you. That they will incur the damage themselves. And that is what Jesus did for you on the cross. He took all of the debt that you personally owe to God and he took it on to himself. All of the wages of your sin, all of the guilt that you feel, all of the shame that you feel, all of the fear of eternal punishment that you deserve, he credited that to his own account and then he died on the cross, the death that you deserved to pay. And then he came out of the grave. You know what that means? The check cleared. There were sufficient funds in the account that all of the debt of sin was paid and Jesus still had life in himself to come out of the grave. So imagine if Jesus had died for your sin but he never came up out of the grave. Then again, we would always kind of wonder, was it enough? But we know that it was enough because Jesus came walking out and all of the debt that you owe is left there in the grave. So that we would know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So when you come to Jesus and you say that you owe a debt that keeps you in bondage, that keeps you in prison, that has led to all kinds of suffering and sickness in your life, you come confessing your sins and you ask for forgiveness, Jesus will say to you, Take heart, my child, your sins are forgiven. And maybe that's what some of you are walking into this place and you need to hear that for the first time, that you're feeling the weight of guilt and shame and sin. You're even experiencing all of the consequences for your horrible, horrible decisions in your life and you feel imprisoned. Your sins can be forgiven. If you believe in Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. And if we connect this story to the other story that we saw, one of the chief roles that Satan plays as he is walking around trying to devour us, one of the main things that he does in this life is he accuses us of our sin. That's actually what Satan means. Satan isn't a name, it's a title, and it means accuser. That is Satan's role in this fallen creation, is he is like the horrible prosecuting attorney who is always standing there telling you, this is your sin. This is what you have done wrong. This is why you are guilty. This is why you should be ashamed. This is why God would never love you. This is why you don't belong anywhere because you are a bad, guilty person. That is what Satan does. And so if you're in here and you're feeling that weight, that burden of guilt and shame, especially if you're a Christian, that's the devil. That's not true of you anymore because as Colossians says, when Jesus died on the cross, your whole record of sin was nailed to the cross with him. All of your sins nailed to the cross. This is why in Colossians 2.15, Paul says, in dying on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's Satan and his demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He took his weapons away. What weapon? His weapon to accuse you because you have no sin you are not guilty anymore before God. And so when Satan says that you are, you can just say, be gone. 
That's not true. It's the cross where Jesus Christ crushed the serpent's head even when his heel was bruised. So brothers and sisters, if you have believed this gospel, if you have believed this good news that Jesus died for your sins and more than that was raised, then these words from Psalm 103 are true for you. Listen to this. My brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. Think about that. How high are the heavens above the earth? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they are that far away from you. They have nothing to do with you. It is completely forgiven, all of it forever. So as we come to the close of this section of three stories in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, as I said, that they show us that Christ has authority over a fallen creation, over the devil and his demons, and over your very sin. And so there is nothing left. There is nothing left for you to fear. That doesn't mean that scary things won't happen. We still live in this fallen world and there still are demons and we will still sin. But Christ has authority over all of those things and he has taken your sin away and given you the promise of eternal life. And so because of that, I can say to you, my brothers and sisters, take heart. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us with this good news that we are forgiven of our sins. And so no matter what kind of guilt or shame or condemnation we feel, that's not from you anymore. That's not true. We thank you for Jesus who is our everything, who has paid the debt of sin that we owe and has given us his righteousness. God, thank you for your authority over demons. We pray that you would keep us from the evil one and that you wouldn't lead us into temptation, but you would deliver us. I pray if there's anyone here who is in the bondage of spiritual forces or any other kind of addiction or, or sin or guilt or whatever it is, Lord, would you deliver them this morning? And if they need help, if they need help from someone else, Lord, put it on their heart to come and ask that we can all go together to you, to your throne of grace, and know that you have authority over everything that we suffer in this life. In your name we pray, amen.